Welcome to Nomadicate, a podcast all about exploring how different cultures, things, ideas, and even people shape and define our lives and our world. You're listening to your host, Katie DeVille, and today we're going to get philosophical. In this episode, we're going to explore the philosophies of Sisu, Wabi Sabi, Ubuntu, and Meraki. These philosophies from around the world will help us reframe our lives for the better. We'll take a look at their rich origins, profound meaning, and talk about how these philosophies can apply to how we navigate through life and interact with the world. Thanks for dropping into Nomadicate, and thanks for choosing to be a global citizen. If you liked my previous episode, please consider leaving a review. There is no greater art form than life. In fact, all art is rooted in some truth of the human experience. Life and art feed off of one another, and the way that we handle adversity, connect with people, and create a way of living that feels fulfilling, exciting, and productive is an art in itself. It takes the ultimate finesse. Even if you can't draw, play music, or write stories— You're an artist because you're creating a large portion of your reality, and we need tools to sculpt out what type of life we want for ourselves. It takes vision, wisdom, and skill. And this is where philosophy plays in. Philosophy is a tool which is often rooted in thousands of years worth of wisdom about life. We can use philosophy to shift our perspective and it can help us gain clarity, peace, and motivation to move forward in challenging times. When I think of philosophy, my mind goes straight to ancient Greece and philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle. And while we'll be talking about one Greek philosophy towards the end of the episode, today we're going to also discover some core philosophies of Finland, Japan, and South Africa. So, without any further ado... Let's dive into the episode. Our first philosophy is Sisu. Sisu is deeply weaved into Finnish culture, and it's considered a way of life, taught to children from a very young age. To fully understand this concept, we really have to think about Finland's geography and history. So, to start off, where is Finland? Finland lies between the latitudes of 60 degrees north and 70 degrees north, so it's quite up there. The Russian Federation borders Finland on the east and southeast, with Sweden on the west and Norway on its northern border. Summers are mild and short, and as you can imagine, the winters can be harsh and long. Winters, which are characterized by a mean temperature of below zero degrees, last around 200 days in northern Finland, and around 100 days in the south. Finland is considered an Arctic region, as about one quarter of the country is within the Arctic Circle. In northern extremities, such as Finnish Lapland, sunlight can be scarce or non-existent during the winter months. For example, southern Lapland only sees about six hours worth of daylight in the middle of winter. In northern Lapland, the sun doesn't rise throughout December and through mid-January. On the other hand, the sun doesn't set for 73 days during the summer in the extreme northern parts of Finland, 
This is called the midnight sun because the sun appears on the horizon at local midnight and stays there until it rises again. To say the least, having lived in the nice and toasty areas of the United States, like Louisiana and California, the winter months of Finland seem like nearly unbearable living conditions for me. In fact, I'd probably get sad. And while sadness is a consequence of it, and it's no joking matter, even though I made a pun, (laughs) I'm actually talking about seasonal affective disorder, also known as SAD. According to the article, Northerners Cope in Different Ways with Prolonged Winter Darkness, published by the Barents Observer, 12% of Finns have SAD, which is marked by sleep disorders, lack of energy, social withdrawal, weight gain, carb cravings, and sadness. So, how have Finns throughout history endured freezing temperatures and little to no sunlight? Well, Finns have sisu. It's their take on what Americans would call grit. But it's more aggressive and steadfast than any version of perseverance or grit that I've heard of before. Amelia Lati talks about it in her TED Talk, Sisu, Transforming Barriers into Frontiers. Lati is a researcher from Aalto University in Finland's capital, and her work is focused on how people find inner strength to push through and harness intense adversity to their benefit. Her findings about Sisu have been published in the Scientific American, Forbes, and Business Insider. According to Lati, Sisu is more complex than resilience and perseverance. While resilience means to bounce back from adversity and perseverance means to strive for a long-term goal, Lati explains that Sisu is defined as the extraordinary determination and resoluteness in the face of extreme adversity. Even if you can't see a light at the end of the tunnel, it's a blend of hope, courage, and tenacity. It's really an extremely beautiful and relevant concept. I really just love it because sometimes you need that inner fire, that second wind, as Lati later talks about, when you're at your wit's end and you need something to carry you through to the next moment. While the philosophy of Sisu has been around for centuries, Sisu was particularly needed following Finland's independence from the Soviet Union in 1917, and again during the Winter War. The Winter War began in 1939 after the Soviet Union invaded Finland and ended in 1940 with the Moscow Peace Treaty. According to Olga Smirnova's article, Sisu, the Finnish Art of Inner Strength, published by BBC, the word originates from Sisus, I think that's the pronunciation, which translates to guts in English. Tough times call for a strong mind and spirit. And Sisu captures this perfectly. Finns today are still very in tune with this philosophy, and it really shows in their tradition of taking cold plunges in freezing waters during the winter. So, when things become unbearable, remember, you have Sisu. Our second philosophy is the Japanese concept called wabi-sabi. Life and individuals are riddled with imperfection, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. In a world of social media, 
it's very easy to compare ourselves to others, whether that's our lifestyles, beauty, or relationships. On a daily basis, we're more prone to seeing how we, as people, and our lives are imperfect compared to manipulated images that others portray on their accounts. We see people posting pictures of sunny beach destinations in another country, their smooth, glowing skin, which is often a filter, by the way, or just nice lighting, brunch with their best friends, or their anniversaries. More often than not, we tend to perceive others' lives as less flawed than our own, even if that's a false perception. And we resent that. But wabi-sabi is a really helpful philosophy that reminds us that imperfection is beautiful, natural, and authentic. As someone who struggled with positive body image, this concept is comforting. For years, I really didn't like my nose because it's on the larger side in my opinion and has a curvature where I would have liked it to be completely straight. But as I've grown older, I've grown to accept and even like my nose. And whenever I have relapses and insecurity, I think of wabi-sabi. According to Amaratani's article, Five Teachings from the Japanese Philosophy That Can Drastically Change Your Life, wabi-sabi is defined as the endless quest for seeking beauty and imperfection and accepting the cycle of life. Everything is incomplete and impermanent. Therefore, perfection is just an illusion and impossible to achieve. The essence of wabi-sabi can be traced back to Taoism in China's Song Dynasty from 960 to 1279 AD, and then later to Zen Buddhism. Lily Crossley Baxter explains wabi-sabi's history in her article, Japan's Unusual Way to View the World. According to Baxter's article, the first instance of wabi-sabi in practice occurred around the 15th and 16th centuries through a style of an ancient tea ceremony called wabi-cha. This style was established by the tea masters Murata Juko and Sinnoriku, who chose common, rustic, simple Japanese pottery over high craftsmanship, popular pottery imported from China. This encouraged guests to study the textures and subtle colors that would have been previously ignored. Wabi-sabi helps us see we're all a part of the natural world, and we're all at the mercy of greater natural forces and timelines. We shouldn't view asymmetry or dents as mistakes but rather masterpieces of nature. This is valuable to remember as our bodies change throughout life. I have scars from acne, and as I age, my body is going to look different than it does now. And in a society that's obsessed with youth and glamour, it's easy to feel pressure to change yourself to fit current beauty standards. According to Atani, the anti-aging market was estimated to be worth around 60 billion dollars in 2020. I wonder if that includes the makeup, wellness, and plastic surgery industries. And I'm in no way saying that these industries are completely bad or people shouldn't wear makeup or have procedures that boost their self-confidence. But I do think these industries profit from our insecurities and are pushing a harmful narrative through products and procedures so they can benefit. Itani also talks about kintsugi, which is an ancient art inspired by wabi-sabi. 
It's the art of mending broken things with gold fillings. It gives the appearance of golden scars, and it's such a beautiful concept. Rather than just tossing something away, isn't it better to see how we can fix something? And isn't it better to try to highlight the trauma rather than conceal it? This can be applied to pretty much every aspect of our life. For scars, that's our own body's way of kintsugi. Our body healed itself. For emotional traumas, we can accept what happened, see how it changed us, and perhaps use it to our or others' benefit later. I'm going to read a rather lengthy passage from Atani's article because it's just so beautifully worded. It reads, Kintsugi reminds us there is a great beauty in broken things because scars tell a story. They demonstrate fortitude, wisdom, and resilience earned through the passage of time. Why hide these imperfections or golden scars when we are meant to celebrate them? The idea here is simple. There will be many times in your life when you will feel broken. There will be events that will leave you with emotional or physical scars. Do not hide in the shadow of your own sunshine. Do not dim your own light with the darkness of a cloud. Instead, let those scars be redrawn with gold. Consider that your failures are there to teach you how not to do things. Your mistakes are there to teach you the importance of forgiveness. And your wrinkles are there to remind you of your laughs that caused them. Start to embrace this concept of kintsugi, that broken things are not to be hidden. They are to be displayed with pride, and you'll slowly begin to realize how you're dissolving that image of perfection and replacing it with a new divine concept of beauty, the entirety of you. Itani's passage ends there, but it's true. We all feel broken at some point or another, and it's hard to accept traumas done by or to you. However, wabi-sabi can help us continue on and learn and appreciate imperfection. Our next concept to discuss is a South African philosophy called Ubuntu. Ubuntu really resonates with me for a few reasons. During college, I learned about globalization and how the world is really interdependent. Different countries need each other for trading and innovation, and our global ecological system is fragile. One event or disaster can affect another location far away. On a more personal level, I've grown up in a uniquely close family. My parents homeschooled and raised my brothers and I in the country, so growing up, we relied on each other and nature for entertainment. We built a micro-community out of each other's company, our own company, and the land. And as we've all grown up and become very distinct individuals, I can see how our childhood affected our personalities and affects how we interact with one another today. Personally, as the youngest in the family, I feel like my whole personality is just a conglomeration of my mom, dad, and my brothers. Each one of them encompasses such a different energy, and their existence has played a major role in all the values and traits that I strive to attain. And as we've lost our dad this year, we've all come together in a really rare and special way. At some level, we recognize we live for others, each other, 
This is where Ubuntu comes in. Ubuntu can be roughly translated to I am because we are, or I am because you are. The term is of the Ninguni Bantu languages. The Ninguni languages are closely related to Bantu languages, sonically distinct by clicking phonemes, and they're spoken by people living in South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Swaziland. Ubuntu was a very important concept during the post-apartheid, as South Africa transitioned away from white supremacy and segregation, and it's grown to be a term that can serve not only South American communities, but the global community as well. According to the YouTube video, What We Can Learn from the African Philosophy of Ubuntu by BBC Real, Professor James Ogund of University of Pretoria dives in-depth into the concept. He explains that Ubuntu is our social awareness about a consciousness about others. A social awareness, if you will. We not only have a responsibility to ourselves, but to the totality of our environment. A principal idea of Ubuntu is co-agency. We're all co-creators, all interdependent in a balanced biodiversity. If something human or non-human is unbalanced beyond ourselves, that also affects our personal balance and well-being. Professor Ogun also differentiates between individuality and individualism. Because Ubuntu isn't about the loss of self— He states that individuality gives us a sense of freedom, independence, and opportunity for personal growth. Individualism, on the other hand, is selfish in nature. The ego is the engine of individualism, and it's about yourself at all times. Western countries are individualist, and African countries are collectivist. This is where the West can really learn from Africa— Living in America can feel very isolated because individualism is hyper-focused, and I believe that's a lead cause of depression. According to the 2023 World Population Review, the United States has the second highest rate of depression, tied with Estonia and Australia. As Professor Ogun states, communities constantly remind us we're not in isolation, It reminds us that not only do we belong to something greater than ourselves, but we have the responsibility to belong. In the article I Am Because We Are, The African Philosophy of Ubuntu, Professor Ogun further explains the importance of interdependence. Despite conflict, he says people will debate, people will disagree. It's not like there are no tensions. It is about coming together and building a consensus around what affects the community. And once you have debated, then it is understood what is best for the community, and then you have to buy into that. Sometimes this can be hard as we believe our own opinions, our needs, matter more than others. But we shouldn't look at it this way. Community takes a degree of sacrifice. And while it may be hard to see things through others' eyes, or even put others' needs before your own, this can be beneficial in the long run, since we're all connected. And I'm not talking about abusive relationships or abusive community dynamics. In an ideal dynamic, everyone should be heard and respected. And in the long run, everyone benefits because your well-being is my well-being, and my well-being is yours. It's a loop. 
Nelson Mandela, the first president of South Africa from 1994 to 1999, also spoke about Ubuntu. Mandela's leadership focused on racial reconciliation, and Ubuntu was a tool in dismantling the legacy of the apartheid. In the video Nelson Mandela Explains Ubuntu Concept, published by Ross Piercy, Mandela explains that Ubuntu doesn't mean that people shouldn't enrich themselves. He then poses the question if we're going to do so in order to enable the community around us to improve. I think this philosophy is conducive to a fulfilling life. As I get older, I'm starting to realize that relationships are the most important aspect of all of life. Everything else falls second. For our fourth and final philosophy, we'll be talking about Meraki, or maybe it's pronounced Miraki? I don't know, but I've been familiar with this concept for a few years, and as someone who's had a lot of creative endeavors, the idea of Meraki really helps me put 100% of myself into what I'm doing. According to the NPR article, Translating the Untranslatable, Meraki can be best described as doing something with soul, creativity, and love. Whatever you're doing, you're putting something of yourself into your work. Although it's a modern Greek word, it's most likely derived from ancient Greek teachings. According to Eric Brown's article, Meraki, an ancient Greek secret for a rich life, he explains that Aristotle found that the act of creating through art, such as theater, and in essence, Meraki, have the ability to lift people's souls and fill them with wonder. If you think about the Olympics, the effect was the same. Athletes' work was very tiring and difficult, but they found satisfaction and value in it. And maybe this is because they threw their minds and bodies into intense regimes. This required Meraki, and it captivated audiences. Brown argues that creating with love and passion, leaving a piece of ourself in our work, is the secret to living a satisfied life, filling in a sense of void. He argues that humans are creators by nature, and our lives can improve with a little Meraki. Well, that concludes our fifth episode. If you like this episode, please consider leaving a review. Again, you're listening to Nomadicate. And I'm your host, Katie DeVoe. Thank you for joining me today. And subscribe if you want to take your global citizenship to the next level and learn even more about our beautiful big world and some of the things and people that influence it. Thanks for being a global citizen. And thanks for tuning in. Bye for now. And remember to stay curious.